well done. Well done uh, for making it. Um, it's much easier when the sun has had some time in the sky already by the time Burning Man comes around, isn't it, um, to make it, and the sun is shining. But fantastic to have you. My name's Pat. I'm involved with uh, helping run Burning Man. Uh, so welcome, especially if this is your first time um, to uh, visiting the ministry. Uh, we are in a series this term um, looking at promises and warnings to keep us, uh, looking at some of... Uh, Scripture holds out both promises, things to encourage us, inspire us to keep running the race, but also warnings, uh, warnings to um, keep us from uh, falling off the edge, I guess. So uh, that's what the series is about this term. Later in the term, we've got a, a two-part mini-series um, looking at some apologetics. We've got um, Michael Ramsden coming in. We've got Mike Lloyd um, from Whitcliffe College in Oxford coming in. Um, so we've got some really exciting speakers coming up. We've got Rico Tice in two weeks' time. Uh, um, he's coming along, which is a real thrill. So he's going to be here this time in two weeks. Um, but this morning, I'm really excited to introduce my good friend, uh, Paul Cowley, who's uh, a burning man himself. He comes along regularly, uh, but he's agreed to come and speak to us this morning. So I'm going to just welcome Paul up, ask him a couple of questions, and then he's going to speak to us. So would you give a warm welcome to Paul? Paul, great to see you. Thank you. Looking sharp as ever. Thank um, you. Paul, you haven't always been uh, a clergyman, but since you've been ordained, uh, you're going to tell us a bit more about life before Christ during your talk, so I don't want to preempt that. But since being ordained, what is some of the work uh, that you have been involved with? Um, well, mostly prison work. So, um, so I was um, able to, to get Alpha into the, the prisons around about 96. I've been working with that, and then... From that, we found out that there was a need to help the guys when, and the women, mostly men, when they come out to get involved in churches and communities. So we started a charity called Care Infect Offenders. And then through that, the bits and the profile of, of a guy or, or a woman coming out of prison is usually in debt, uh, no accommodation, no employment, reading difficulties. So we started different areas of ministry around that, actually. Mm -hmm. And that then became the William Wilberforce Trust, uh, which has morphed now into HDB taking on all that work and developing it. So I, I oversee that now. And I have a very grand title now called the Ambassador for Social mm. Transformation, which I was very excited at until I spoke to someone and said, oh, I'm the Ambassador for Social Transformation. And someone said to me, do you know what that is when you're an ambassador? I said, no, not really. Well, it's when you get a little bit older and they don't know what to do with you. So they call you an ambassador, <laughs> which, which knocked the edge of it a little bit. So, so I'm responsible for bits like that. Yeah, and you've also actually been recognised with another title. Uh, Paul recently paid a visit to Buckingham Palace to see Her Majesty. So when you refer to him, please do refer Reverend Paul Cowley, MBE, <laughs> uh, which is uh, yeah, tremendous and recognition of all your good works. Thank um, you, thank you. Uh, so, Paul, thank you so much uh, for being with us this morning. Just share with us why you feel it's important to do this kind of thing, or why you've got a passion for men's ministry. In general, well, we were talking. I said to Pat, it's great that he's kept this going because um, it's quite hard work to one to get men together, uh, together two to, to keep it going like you have, which I think is brilliant. But it's really important that um, as men, I think you'll hear a little bit in a minute. But as men, that we are equipped to speak confidently about the gospel. I think in Matthew is it eleven twelve or twelve eleven? I get mixed up. It says that the you know, the gospel is forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. So it's just really important that we're equipped to do this. And I think we are, but we lack confidence sometimes to speak. And you just never know 
that one word that you speak out, how it can change people's lives. Mm, wonderful. Well, Paul, um, we're delighted you're with us, speaking to us this morning. Can I pray for you? Yes, love to. And then let's get going. Father, thank you so much uh, for your son, Paul, our brother, for all that you've done in his life, for the place that you've brought him from, the place you've brought him to, that he is a co-heir with Christ, that all the riches of heaven are his. Lord, such good news, Lord. And we just thank you, Lord, for the ministry that you have birthed through him, Lord, for his heart, for his passion, for prisoners, for men, for all kinds of things. And we thank you for what you've put on his heart to share with us this morning. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would equip him now and you'd help us to hear what you're saying to us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Pat. Um, it was very exciting to go to the, the palace and get that award, but more exciting to be invited to Burning Man. I feel like I've actually made it now with all these great names that have been here and spoken, and then me. So I'm very excited, so thank you, Pat. What I wanted to share with you this morning, I was talking to Pat, or Pat was talking to me a little bit about this theme that you're going through, about um, not, not so much warnings, but encouragement and different things. So I wanted to just share um, a story with you, a testimony, I guess, mine, but, but share that, but bring out of that the question really that Pat asked me, why is it important that we gather? And hopefully at the end of it, and we can discuss it. And uh, any questions you've got, I'd love to answer. But hopefully at the end of it, you'll see that, um, you know, the importance of, of sharing our faith. So there's two scriptures that I'd love you to have a, a look at. One in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament. And I want you to hold them together. So if you've got a Bible or your phone or however you do it, it would be great for you just to have a look at the first one. And you probably know them really well because they're well-versed scriptures is in Jeremiah 29 verse 11 really goes through but verse 11 and, and I'll paraphrase it just for time but if you can find it it'd be great uh, Jeremiah 29 verse 11 for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord plans to prosper you and not to harm you plans to give you hope and a future and it goes on a little bit and the other one I wanted you to keep a thumb in is in Romans Romans 5 verses 1 to 5 Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And that hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. And then it goes on just to verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. If you keep a finger in those two scriptures, the Jeremiah one and the Romans one, and if you look through, depending on which version of the Bible you have, you've got NIV there, I think the same as me, you'll see a, a tiny word appears about three or four times, uh, and it's hope. And that's what I just wanted to sort of hang some thoughts on this morning, um, hope. Because the first bit in Jeremiah says that uh, God has a plan for us, plan to prosper us and not to harm us. And then the second bit really says, through all the stuff that we go through, 
our sufferings, and there's people in here suffered a lot more than I have, but the sufferings that we go through then develops perseverance, and that perseverance then forms our character, really, and that character then develops hope, and God pours that love, hope into our hearts, and it's a hope and a love that will not disappoint, because God puts it in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. And then that bit at the end, just at the right time, he does that stuff. So if you hold on to those two scriptures uh, and keep an eye on them, but what I'd love to ask the question is, what if you don't know there's a plan? What if you don't know there's a perfect plan? And what if you don't know that all the stuff that you go through, maybe as as a kid or in school or as as a young adult or all that stuff, what if you don't know all that stuff you go through which can be painful, the suffering, the Bible says. What if you don't know that God's got a plan to use that to develop your character and make you stronger and then that hope that you can stand in and be firm? What if you don't know any of that stuff and you just go through it? Well, it's a nightmare. Because if you don't know there's a plan, what you normally do is make your own plan up. And if you don't know the stuff that you're going through is going to come to some good point at the end, then you get a resentment, then you get fed up, and then you lose hope. And as you know in Proverbs, it says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. So you become sick, not physically or or whatever, but you become sick with inside as a person. And no matter what you put around it, you're still sick. That's my opinion. So for me, I had no idea that God had a plan. And the reason I had no idea will become apparent in a moment. I grew up in, in Manchester. My, both my parents were functioning alcoholics. I say functioning because I never really knew what I was going to get on a daily basis. Sometimes they were great, and sometimes it was a little bit tricky. My father, unashamedly, was my hero in his prime, about six foot two, six foot three. Uh, a very violent, powerful man. Not violent to me, but to everyone else around him. So I grew up seeing my father lots of times, knocking, anyway, beating people up. To, to say the least. And my mother was, um, was as powerful and as violent, uh, but with her tongue. My mum was about five foot. And those two together, goodness me, you put them together, it was an extraordinary combination. And I grew up, I've got no siblings, so just me. So I grew up in that environment. And we used to have arguments, oh, my mum and dad would have arguments every weekend. And I won't bore you with it all, but I grew up in this, this cycle of sort of um, destruction. My father would start an argument on the Thursday. Uh, That would give him an excuse to get up and walk out and slam the door, then go to the pub. And really that sort of thing would happen all the way through to about Monday or Tuesday. And then Tuesday, my dad would soften and my mother would soften and then they'd start to speak. Wednesday would be a really good day. They'd love each other. Thursday, the same thing would start again. And it was usually those sort of things that happened in our house. And the arguments were over, over, usually over money. It was over drink. Uh, oh, it was over women. My father was a, um, a womanizer and, and had numerous affairs while he was married to my mum. So I grew up in that sort of environment. My father was from Toxteth in Liverpool. My grandfather was a, a street fighter in Toxteth, so you can see the upbringing my dad had. And my mum was from a place called Birkenhead on the Wirral. Uh, and I was born in Salford in Manchester. So it's quite a combination of areas to, to grow up in. And that was my, my life. It was, uh, you don't know anything else when you're a kid. So I grew up in that, and at the age of 15, two things happened really. One, I got expelled from school, and the reason I got expelled from a a comprehensive in Manchester um, was, I don't think because I was bad, just that I didn't attend because I was bullied. If anyone in here has been bullied, you you know what that's like, and it was awful. It was a really rough school, 
I was a small kid with blonde hair and blue eyes, and uh, it was just a nightmare. All the time there was fights, and I was in them, and I never won any of them. Anyway, I didn't go. I got expelled. Same time that happened, I was at home, and I got in between an argument with my mother and father. My father was about to hit my mother over something, and I tried to stop him, and I got the clout that my mum was going to get, and there was a big argument, and long story short, I got thrown out. And I was about 15 and a half, and I suppose in my arrogance and youth, I thought, I've had enough of this stuff. I'm off. I'm going to make it on my own, because outside's got to be better than inside. And I lived on the streets for a while, not long, but long enough to know what it is to, to live rough. I got involved with a gang who, uh, who picked me off the streets. Uh, I was living in Stockport at the time, just outside Manchester. They took me in under their wing. The guy that ran this sort of squat, this house, had numerous men and women coming in all the time. And I moved into that. And actually, in, in a way, I quite liked it because he, he, he looked after me, this guy that was leading this, this gang. gang. Uh, and what we'd do is we'd thieve. And I got involved in, in theft, petty theft. Not that I wanted to, but I just did. Stealing from houses, then it was from shops, and then warehouses, and it progressed. And what we'd do, we'd get all the stuff, bring it back to the house, it'd be divvied up and sold, and that's how we got money. I'm not proud of that, but that's what we did. And I was hopeless at it, pathetic. So I constantly got caught by the police. So that constantly led to a relationship with the police, magistrates caught, bound over to keep the peace, fines, which I couldn't pay because I was unemployed, then probation, which I didn't go to. And in the end, I went to prison. I got what's called a totting up offence. And, and really, in front of the magistrates, I was um, recommended to spend some time inside. And I went to uh, a place called Risley, um, which his nickname was Grizzly Risley, in, uh, just outside of Liverpool. And it was a Borstal detention centre when I went, and it was awful. While I was in there, um, lots of things happened I won't bore you with, but just to let you know, there's always someone bigger than you, that's for sure. While I was in there, my parents didn't come to see me or visit me. And when I got out, I can talk about that later, but when I got out, um, I wanted to go home. Uh, this big, tough kid was um, scared. I, I wanted to go home. So I made my way back to where we were living last, or I thought we were. And when I got there, someone else opened the door. Uh, my mother and father had got divorced. I didn't know at the time. My dad had disappeared to Liverpool. My mum had gone up to... Um, the Wirral and Birkenhead, and so, anyway, someone else was living in there. I didn't know where they were. So that was a bit of a shock. I wanted to get myself together. Um, I got myself a job driving a truck. I worked at night in a, in a bar, and I wanted to try and keep out of trouble and not go back to prison, because it frightened the life out of me. And while I was doing that, sort of driving this sort of furniture truck and working in a bar at night, living in a bed sit on my own, and trying to keep my act together, while I was driving, I saw a poster and it was brilliant marketing, it was for the army, and it was in Manchester, and it was a big billboard, and it had two um, soldiers on the front in camouflage uniform. Um, the backdrop was mountains with snow on the top, blue skies, the sun was shining, and, and they were skiing. They looked really good, and they said, do you want a life of adventure? Then join the British army. And, and I went to the nearest recruiting office, which was in Fountain Street in Manchester, and I walked in, parked the truck, and I said, I want to do that stuff on that poster with all this skiing and everything. Anyway, long discussions. It took me a long time to, um, to persuade them to accept me because of my criminal record. Um, and I did in the end, I got in, and I spent the next 16 and a half years in the military. Uh, and I loved it. It absolutely saved my life. It was the only thing up to then that had invested in me because no one had invested in me. I had absolutely no hope. 
And when I got accepted into the army, I felt this surge of hope that I could possibly be something because someone had given me a, a chance. But during that time in, in the military, um, my career went really well. I thought it was quite good. I did all right. I looked good in my uniform. I had all the bits. But my, my moral compass was, was not even existent. It was, I had no idea how to manage life. The military, yeah, it fed me, it watered me. Um, I did three tours in Northern Ireland. I went down to the Falklands at the end of the campaign. I was in a few different regiments. My last four years were Army Physical Training Corps. I became a PT instructor, um, specializing in adventure training. And it was fantastic. It was brilliant. But I also went through two marriages. I went through two divorces. I left my son, who was three in my first marriage. Couldn't handle the responsibility of trying to be a father. Couldn't handle the responsibility of looking after a child. Uh, and I got rid of them. I sent them back to England, and I cracked on. Got 18 months on my own. Didn't like that, so I got married again. Another divorce about 18 months, two years later. No children, but that was me. From seeing my father as an alcoholic, I didn't become an alcoholic, but I certainly drank too much. From being bullied at school, I learned how to look after myself, so really I became a bit of a bully in a uniform. And that was my life. Constantly in debt, uh, going through divorces, and I think looking back, full of despair. But actually looking all right, and I wouldn't tell you that, self-sufficient, but in a bit of a mess. And the reason for that, when I, I look back, is no one told me there was a plan. I love plans. I love structure. I'm a bit militaryish still. I love boxy things. I like things sorted out. I'd love to know there was a plan for my life. My plan was a nightmare because I made it up day by day. I went from one disaster to another. And some bits were brilliant, but mostly it, it was a nightmare. Nobody told me that God had a plan. And nobody told me that all this stuff that I go through could be beneficial in the end and help me develop my character and then instill hope. Nobody. And the reason that is, my parents were atheists. Absolutely. So I grew up in an atheistic family. There's no one, when I've looked back in my generations, who were Christian at all. No God at, at all that I can find. The school I went to, uh, I don't remember, I wasn't there long, but I don't remember any religious education. I don't remember doing anything at all. It just didn't do it. Then when I went to prison, I never met a chaplain. I never had that knock on the door that I'm involved in now in the prison saying, don't worry, son, I know it's a bit scary. Come and have a cup of tea with me. You'll be all right. It'll be fine. Keep your head... Nothing. So while I was in prison, I never met a chaplain, never went to chapel, never got given a Bible. All those years in the military, various units that I was in in the artillery, then transferring, then Northern Ireland, then the fog, I never met a padre at all, any padre. And they're there, but I never met them. I wasn't looking for them, to be fair to them, but I never met a padre. He said, how are you doing, son? How are you doing, Lance Bombardier? How are you doing, corporal? How are you doing, sergeant? Nothing. Not in the science mess, not in the junior NCOs mess, not in the anything. So nobody told me about God. And that continued up to the age of nearly 30, 39, nearly 40 years of age. Nobody spoke to me about God. Why is that? Why did nobody speak to me? Lots to talk about with that one. Maybe it was God's plan, like the Romans, at the right time. So for me, that was my lifestyle, just to tell you what I was into without going into great detail. And what happened really for me is I left the army. The reason I left is I was just fed up. I'd done most things. I was becoming sort of um, 
anti-army. Sounds silly, but my sideburns were growing a little bit. I was becoming a bit rebellious, and it's an institution. And if you know institutions, I've been in them all my life. Prison, army, now Church of England. And I'm trying to work out which is the most difficult. It's probably the latter. So if you're in an institution, you need to work within an institution. Otherwise, it's a nightmare. One of you has to go. And that, that's why I left. I didn't know what was happening. I was just feeling uneasy in my career. So I left. I moved in with, um, with a girl. My uh, girlfriend, one of my postings was in Coventry. So I set up a house there and we moved in together. Um, and things were going all right. And then one morning, I, um, I went to collect the, the, you know, the mail. The bills all came through, water, gas, electric, all that stuff. And in the junk of mail that came through, there was a, there was a card. And the reason it caught my eye, it had a biblical scene on the front. Not normally what I get through the post. And it was, um, it was a shepherd. Uh, and the shepherd had this crook. And he had his foot on a rock. And there was two sheep. Well, there was a lot of sheep around him. And then someone had put a pen, a circle around two of the sheep, and put you and me. And I picked it up and I thought, what? Anyway, I thought, this is a surprise postcard. Not used to things like this. And I looked at it. And I turned it over, and it said, I've become a Christian. You need to marry that woman you're living with. Come and see me. Jesus loves you. And it was, not that that was weird. It was a signature on the bottom that sort of made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And the reason why is when I transferred from the Royal Artillery into the Army Physical Training Corps, it's a year's course. And, it, and it's quite hard. And I thought I was quite fit and quite strong and tough. And on that course, I can't remember exactly, there was possibly 100 people went for selection. And it ended up with about 20 of us getting through. One person died on it and two people ended up in wheelchairs. It's quite a hard course. Uh, and, and I nearly died quite a few times going through it. But I ended up getting selected um, to go into the Army Physical Training Course. It takes a year. And during that year, uh, you go through certain parts. There's an advanced course, then there's a probational part, then there's a, a senior probational part. Then if you get through all that, then you, then you get selected and you get badged and you get that cross swords that you see PTIs wearing. And during that, you get allocated um, an instructor and then you get allocated a senior instructor. And while I was going through it, I got allocated this, um, this senior instructor who is a complete lunatic. I mean, a nutter. In fact, the only way you can describe him is a psychopath in, in uniform. And what he was, he was, um, he, was a, he was an army boxer. He was very good. He was a heavy drinker. He was a very violent man. He was very unpredictable. Um, so if you weren't careful, we'd give you a left hook straight away, even whether you're in uniform or not. Um, just a vulgar, it's a man you just don't want to be around. And I got allocated him as my instructor. And all the way through that year, you have to do certain tests. PT Corps guys, they're kind of semi-skilled in, in every sport you can think of. They're not experts, but they can do everything. Because when you get to a unit, you have to instruct it. But you're not brilliant at it. So you go through all these various tests. Gymnastics, canoeing, swimming, climbing. Anyway, a lot. And when you feel that you're ready to, to pass a test, you go up to your senior instructor and you would say to them, uh, Sir, I'm, I'm ready to do the test which will show you that I'm proficient in this area. Can I do it now? And they'd say, yeah, do it. And if you did it well, then you get a tick in the box, then you can move on to your next one. I would go up to him, and I'd say, um, so I'm ready for, for my test. Crack on. And, and I'd do it, and it'd be near enough perfect, because I'd practice it. 
and I'd stand to attention and I'd say, you know, looking expectant, he'd go fail. He'd fail me every time. And that's not because I did it wrong. That was his nature. He was just vindictive and make me do it again. Awful, awful man. I'll tell you one of the things that he did. Uh, there was a guy that I went through the course with who was, uh, was ex-parachute regiment, transferred from the parachute, a guy called um, uh, Slats. That was his nickname. And one of the things you have to do, you have to be proficient as a swimming instructor. So we were doing lots of training for swimming because he was also the swimming specialist, this uh, psychopath in uniform. And uh, we used to go to the uh, swimming pool at Aldershot and we'd learn to swim and do different things and speed training. The night before we were due to do that and be tested, um, he knocked on our door. Me and Slats were sharing a room. Knocked on the door, we opened it. Oh my God, it's him. He said, I, I thought we might go for a drink. What, with us? Yeah, 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 just relax. Forget the senior instructor stuff anymore. Let's just, let's just go out and have a beer and let's relax. You've been doing really well. So me and Slats were slightly nervous about that, not knowing what... No, forget all, this. forget all the rank. Let's go out and have a beer. All right. So we went out, a bit nervous, went out with him. We had a, quite a few beers. Uh, came back quite late. It was all shaking hands and everything. It was all brilliant. We went to our room. He went to his place. The next morning, we're on parade at Sandhurst, big swimming pool. Um, we're all in our speedos there, all lined up, waiting to be tested and everything. Uh, we all stood there, keeps us waiting. And then he walks in, comes down to the side of us, we're all at attention, and he shouts out, uh, Slater, that was my mate, Slater Cowley, one step forward. One step forward. He comes up to us, comes straight in front of me and goes, you've been drinking? Yes, sir. Moves over to Slats. You've been drinking? Yes, sir. Turn to the left. We do one turn to the left. And he makes us do forward rolls all the way around a 50-meter Olympic swimming pool. And you know those knobbly bits that you get on the edge that you put your foot on? He made us do the forward rolls on the knobbly bits all the way around this pool. Back was cut, obviously, bleeding a little bit makes a stand to attention again, and then says to us in a very loud voice, addressing everyone, don't ever, nobody come on my parade smelling of alcohol. Fall back in again. That was the type of character he was. I could tell you other things a lot worse than that that he did. But that was the character. And the reason I was nervous when I got the postcard, it was his signature on the bottom of it. So I thought to myself, not only is he a complete lunatic, a psychopath in uniform, he's now become one of those nutty Christians, and he knows where I live. And that's for fighting the life out of me. So I threw the postcard onto the side, and, and Amanda, who was my girlfriend then, said, um, are you not going to see him? I said, aren't you? No, not at all. No. And she said, why? I said, because he's a nutter. That's why. And then I thought, do you know what? He's got no power over me anymore. I'm out of the army. I'm not in uniform. He's got no rank over me. He's fine. I can handle myself. Why? Anyway, I persuaded myself to go down to see him in Aldershot because he was still in the army. And I spent three days with him. And it was really weird and very odd. One, being back in that environment again. But being sat next to him in uniform, talking to me about God, but knowing what the character is in that uniform is like. So I was very nervous about disagreeing with him in case he gave me a left hook. But we talked for about three days. We went out for a run and we had a few beers. And what was odd, if I'm very honest with you, is 
I couldn't understand this man that I knew and his character and, and the violent nature that, that he had and I'd witnessed for over a year and the words that were coming out of his mouth. And the words he was telling me was, God has a plan for you, Paul. Ah, oh, good plan. And all that stuff that you've been through, you know, he can develop that and use it and he's got a plan that's going to be... Anyway, it's just a bit odd. But the stuff he was telling me was really going into my heart. And what started to happen is hope was starting to be stirred. And I'd put hope so far down and locked it away in my life. You had no idea where it was. I'd even forgotten about it. And those words, those scriptures, were starting to unlock something and make me feel, but I was very nervous about committing to it. And on the last night, we walked to my room. I was leaving in the morning in the science mess, and he said goodnight, and he gave me a bit of paper. And as I was getting ready for bed, this piece of paper um, fell out. And I picked it up, and I read it. I didn't know what it was then, but it was a tract. It was a piece of scripture he'd given me. And, uh, and, and I read it. And as I read it, it was a piece in, in, in Matthew 22, verse 13. It says, you know, the king asked the attendants to grab the man and throw him out into the darkness, tied hands and feet, where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Do you know that scripture? Yeah, well, I'm telling you it's there. So I read it, and it frightened the life out of me. All these ideas of, of, of gnashing of teeth and the horror movies that are seen and stuff I've been in, all came into my head and flooded me. And I got really scared in my room on my own. And I didn't know what to do. And what came into my head is, I don't know if you remember, I'm getting old now, but those ladybird books that you used to teach children how to read and different stories and things. One of those came into my head, and it was a picture of a, of a child kneeling at the side of a bed with his elbows on the mattress, praying like that. And the only thing I could do is I dropped to my knees and I put my hands on the side of the bed in the science mess in my room, and I just went, God, I don't want the gnashing of teeth. and went to bed. I got up in the morning and I walked into science mess to have breakfast, and um, this guy was, uh, this uh, science major was still sat there e eating his breakfast in uniform, and I, I walked up to him, and uh, he didn't even look up, and he said to me, how did you sleep? I said, I slept awful. I didn't sleep very well at all. All that stuff thrown into the darkness, hands bound, feet bound, darkness, wailing, gnashing of teeth. No, I didn't sleep very well at all. He didn't look up again. He kept eating his bacon and egg. He said, so what did you do? I said, I asked God to take away the gnashing of teeth and that he would help me. And then he looked up and smiled and went, welcome to the kingdom of God, Paul. <laughs> Not the best scripture to bring someone into the kingdom. But I wanted to go back to that piece of scripture that at the right time, God died for the ungodly. And that was the first time anyone had really spoken to me about God. And I was nearly 40 years of age. Nobody. And that man is Eric. Eric Martin. Eric, stand up. Is that, that's, um... <laughs> and don't, don't be fooled by his nice little smile and everything. But that was the man that sent me around the swimming pool. And I was so amazed at the change in him. And my, my point is, he was the first one to have the, are we allowed to say balls? First one to have the balls to talk to me about the Christian faith and to take me on. And, and I was kind of rude to him at times and, and it was awkward and it was difficult. He was persistent to tell me that God loved me and there was a plan for me and that I can be a different person. 
Nobody had bothered taking that time to speak to me. And again, like the scripture says, at the right time. And that was my time. And now, one of the nice things is he works for me. <laughs> Eric runs all the military work. He's in charge of all the, uh, globally, the Alpha for Forces. We work with the military uh, around the world. Talk to him later, but Eric runs all that. And he's very experienced, as you can see. But that was a catalyst for me. That's why, really, to get to the point, you've got to share your story. You've got to open your mouth. And it, it comes at inconvenient times. When you're in the shop and you're trying to buy a newspaper and God says, talk to him. And you go, not now. Not now, God. No, not, not now. I'm, I'm busy. You've got to talk. You've got to open your mouth. The scriptures tell us, don't they? If you open your mouth, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. If you don't believe that, try it. It really works as I stand here now. When you've got absolutely nothing to say and you're scared and you feel that God is prompting you, open your mouth and I'm telling you words will come out that you have no idea what they are. And he will start and engage a conversation because he is more passionate to bring that person to Christ than you are. But you are all he has. You are the vessel to bring that person to Christ. You've got to share your stories. You are unique. There is no one like you. And maybe, just maybe, if you don't share your story, then it won't get shared. You need to ponder and think about that one. But since when Eric spoke to me about that, stuff started to change in my life. And I haven't got time to tell you about it, but it started to shift. And what happened really is I got hope. Hope came into me. And I thought, you know what? I started thinking I can be different. I felt God say to me, you can be a decent husband. You can be a good father. You can be a man of integrity. I have got a plan for you, and I've got something for you to do. And we're going to get on with it together. And all that stuff started to flood in me over a period of time. And it started to excite me. And I'm still excited by it now, 19, 20 years on. Because he has a plan for each one of us. And for me, it started to unfold. I had this feeling that I wanted to marry the woman I was living with, as Eric had told me on that postcard. We've been together for eight years, a bit marriage-phobic. I certainly was. My girlfriend had never been married before, but a bit nervous. And I took her out one, one afternoon for a coffee, and I had this idea. Uh, I bought two engagement rings. We went for a coffee, and I pushed these two engagement rings over to her, and she said, and what, what are they for? I said, God said we're, we're meant to get married. She said, he hasn't told me. Why would I marry you? And we had this big argument, and she left me. And I remember thinking, having a glass of wine, a few glasses of wine, thinking, this is not a great plan. I was doing well with my girlfriend. Now she's left me. You told me to... Anyway, we got back together, and, and we got married. We've been together for 30 years, married for 23 now. The other thing happened, I got a, a phone call from my ex-wife, my first wife, Lynn, about my son, who was 16 at the time. He was in trouble with the police, involved in drugs, uh, she was unable to contain him in the house and his stepfather and they didn't get on. It was, it was awful. And uh, I went to see him. Long story short, um, Clinton's now back in, in my life and we're very, very close. He's 37. He lives with us three days a week. Uh, and an amazing relationship we, we have. We are very close indeed for a father and a son, which I thought I would never have. I dumped him when he was three. I didn't see him for about eight, nine years. And God can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Married, got my son back. Uh, I, uh, my wife wanted children. I didn't, for obvious reasons. They already sport, one kid's life. Again, God said, you've got to trust me. I've got a plan for you, Paul. You've got to engage with me. And now I've got a daughter, Phoebe, who's 18. She teaches me lots, especially about spending money. 
but I have this, this, this amazing child that God has given me. Not only that, the work I'm doing now, which Pat very sweetly described, I'm working with the marginalized, the lost, the broken, all that sort of stuff. Stuff of people that don't have any hope uh, and don't have any excitement and can't understand why they've gone through the stuff that they've gone through. And there's no way you would know that there's a plan. There's no way you would understand what you're going through. And, and it's hard to explain. You guys are better at this stuff than I am. But for me, the scriptures just say that God has a plan for our lives. But we have to engage people in that plan. And nobody told me about it. And ifs and pans, and yes and no, if I could have become a Christian earlier, if someone had spoken to me earlier, things might have been different. But at the right time, God speaks to us. And you have no idea when you leave here and God puts someone in front of you that that might be the right time. To steal a phrase from J. John, he says it's like links in a chain if you've heard him speak. And you never know where you are in that chain. You could be the first one and you speak to someone about Jesus and they're rude to you or they spit in your face or they swear at you or, or they go to... Whatever. You could be that first link. First time they've had the gospel. Eric was the first one with me and I was a bit rude to him. Or you could be the last link in that chain and you have no idea that as you open your mouth and you fumble some stuff out and you make a mess of it and you're not sure what you're saying and you get slightly embarrassed and they drop to the knees and come to Christ. Do you know why? Because it's not about you. You have no idea where they are in the chain of salvation. It's just that you might be the last link where they want to come into the kingdom. And for me, it was the wailing and gnashing of teeth that brought me into the kingdom. Try Alpha, it's a lot easier to do that. So the important part is, and, and to finish on there, um, we've got to talk to people. And that's why I'm passionate about men's ministry. Me and Pat's done some stuff at HDB and we tried to keep that going with different things and that's why this is brilliant. But you've got to talk about your story. And you might not have a story like mine and that's fine, it, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm always amazed that people that's been in the Christian faith all their life, I don't know how that's happened. You know, Phoebe, my daughter, has grown up in the Christian faith. Her, her dad's been a vicar all her life. They've had a stable marriage. I'm not a heavy drinker. You know, I'm not a violent man. She's witnessed that model. And again, in the Old Testament, where it says, you know, the sins of the father. My, my grandfather was a nightmare. My father was a nightmare. I was a nightmare until I came to Christ. So my son has got a little bit of that. He knew me before I was a Christian and after. But it starts to get distilled. Phoebe's seen nothing of that. She knows my story, but she'll be different. So when she has children, they'll be different. So it starts to break. And the reason all that generational stuff broke for me is because one man spoke to me about the gospel in a sergeant's mess. So to finish, please speak about your story. And I guarantee you, if we pray, Pat, you pray for us maybe, if we pray that God will give us those opportunities to speak, I will guarantee that he will put someone in front of you, either today, tomorrow, this week, or whenever he wants to do it. Because he is desperate, if God can be desperate, for you to share your story with someone else that they might come to salvation and their lives be changed. And if you don't speak, then who knows what happens to that person. But if you do... What's the worst thing that can happen? You can be slightly embarrassed and they walk away. Well, get on with it. Get on with it. And then move on to the next person. Because you never know, you opening your mouth, how it can change somebody's life. Shall we pray? 
Father, thank you for these scriptures. Thank you that you do have a good and perfect plan, a plan to prosper us and not to harm us, a plan to give us hope and a future. And thank you again, Lord, that through our sufferings, uh, we develop perseverance. Through perseverance, we are formed in our character. And through that character, you put hope in our hearts. And that is a hope that does not disappoint. And just at the right time, you died that we might be set free. So I pray, Lord, that you encourage us, you help us of men. And again, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing and, and forceful men lay hold of it, you tell us in your scriptures. So Father, help us to share our stories, whatever they may be, and give us the courage that when we get put in that situation, that we would just open our mouths and believe and be confident and be courageous that your word says that the Holy Spirit will give us the words to say. And we ask that you do that in all our lives and you continue to do it. And thank you, Lord, that you even choose that we might be your hands and feet to do this work. And we ask all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So much. Um, what an encouragement. What a challenge. Uh, we've got about just over 10 minutes left. Why don't we turn in our groups and uh, chat through what we've heard, uh, maybe share something that's stood out for us and how we can take this forward and perhaps what those opportunities might be. We want to be a community uh, of men here that do go out from this place and live for Christ and take a stand and speak of him. Um, so let's uh, share with one another, encourage each other, challenge each other and then pray for each other before we finish at eight. Sound good?